Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 3rd, 2013, and uh, miraculously it's already a Thursday with a short week with the uh, ringing in of the new year early on. Uh, I have a great interview uh, set up for you today. Actually, I have two. Uh, I have two great pre- people that are both long-term listeners to the show, members of the Survival Podcast community with two entirely different subjects. First, I have Mike Prunty on. Mike Prunty is known as the Backyard Pioneer. He has a little urban homestead, suburban homestead, up in Long Island, uh, kind of right dead center in the middle of Long Island. Well, we all know what just happened in Long Island. It was called Superstorm Sandy. And, uh, un, uh, you know, we might think the Backyard Pioneer would be here to talk about his little backyard homestead. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but the primary focus of having Mike on is to actually discuss what it was like on the ground, uh, not so much in the heavily flooded areas, but the areas that were heavily, heavily affected, uh, what it was like to go for over a week without power, relying on your neighbors, things like that, and the lessons learned, like what should I have done differently? And uh, he's very honest and forthcoming about that, and we'll have him on first in today's show. After that, we're going to have Craig, the Southern Maryland beekeeper, who actually is our true anchor man in the uh, beekeeping series. And he has a completely different take than we've really heard before on beekeeping. Uh, these two, these two interviews will make a great show run a little long, but both interviews ran a little shorter than normal. So we get kind of a full length show, two totally different subjects. And I, to, to accommodate more guests, I might start doing this more in the future once we get moved. Looking at guests that are, you know, going to make good 20, 30 minute interviews versus one hour interviews and pairing them up, uh, because that will let us get more people on the show. If you'd like that, let me know. If you don't like that, let me know. Do it in the comments of the show notes today, though. Um, and let me know what you would prefer with guests that are going to be shorter shows. Should I take that half hour and do something with it individually? Or should I go ahead and bring some guests together once in a while like this? I'd like to know what your thoughts are. Try to give you what you want. Remember, I can't give all of you what you want, but I do try to give the majority uh, what the majority most wants on the show, as long as I can keep the integrity of the show where it is. All right, before we bring these two great guests on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. You know, stocking up on ammo right now is pretty tough. It really is. Everybody's gone crazy because of a fear of an assault weapons ban. Um, I don't think that really we need to go crazy about the ammo right now, but people have, so it's tough to get. But if you want a thousand rounds of two two three ammo, you can still get it at bulk ammo. You're gonna pay a lot more than you would have for it a few weeks ago, but at least they have it. But might I make a suggestion about stocking up on ammo right now? Do you know what ammo is plentiful right now, including at bulk ammo? Shotgun ammo. Um, nobody's freaked out about shotgun ammo yet. They probably will someday. So when everybody's freaking out about one class of ammo, use that time to stock up on the other. There's probably not a better defensive tool for the home and the homestead than a good shotgun. And shotgun ammo is plentiful right now. So maybe that's one way you could partake of the offerings of bulk ammo.com. Remember, as always, 
lightning fast shipping and service of common calibers when in stock. And can't blame them for what's happened with 223 and 308, but they do have it available. That's, that's one really cool thing about bulk ammo. Their supply lines are deep enough. They've been able to stay at least in stock, though at a higher price for now. Uh, next up today is uh, ready-made resources. Now, you know, here's the thing. A lot of companies have names that are like, you know, some kind of weird Web 2.0 name. And you're like, what do they do? What do, they, what do these people do? I don't understand this. You know what I'm talking about. You know, super twerky, quirky land or something. You know, all this Web 2.0. But, hey, ready-made resources is an old-school company that has its business on the web in a very modern way. And that means that name actually means something. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy, and you'll have them shipped to you at Lightning Fast Service. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. I do mean everything. Gardening, check. Tactical, check. Long-term food storage, check. 12-volt appliances to work with your solar and wind projects, check. Uh, solar panels, check. Wind machines, check. Check, check, check. You get it? Whatever you can think of. ReadyMade's got it. ReadyMade, ready to go. Check them out today again. ReadyMadeResources.com. Best way to visit ReadyMade Resources or any of our sponsors. Go to TheSurvivalPodcast.com first. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. You'll know you're dealing with someone that carries my endorsement and the approval of our listener ad council. It doesn't come easy. You can't be a sponsor just by showing up. I won't go into the full process today, but know that sponsors are heavily vetted and their slots are jealously contested. There's a long line of people waiting for a spot, and they don't open often. All right, so I also want to tell you real quick, tspcopper.com. You can go there today, you're going to see a message that says it's closed. There's nothing wrong. It says, put your email address in, we'll tell you when a big announcement happens. It's true. Um, we are working with AOCS Mint to completely change the way the survival podcast is in the metals industry, uh, to broaden our offerings, to bring you TSP Silver. Uh, it won't be a new domain name or anything, but yeah, TSP Silver, a coin that you guys have actually voted on. There were two designs. The, the people were completely split. It was almost a 50-50 split on the two designs. So we made design A the front and design B the back. So a completely new copper or a completely new medallion, this time in silver. There may be some gold in the new store. Um, if you want to be notified when we reopen it, immediately when we reopen it, go by tspcopper.com today and put your email address in. Last but not least today, do consider joining the member support brigade. You do that. You get exclusive content available nowhere else. You get discounts to over 30 different supporting vendors. Some are sponsors, some are not. But those discounts add up to way more than pay for your membership. Uh, really, really quickly, if you're buying anything in this industry, the membership pays for itself. You'll help support the show at 18.3 whopping cents per episode. And with that, I do have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, and it's my pleasure right now. To uh, introduce our first guest again, Mike Prunty. He is a 39-year-old suburban husband and father. He works as a lineman for Verizon. He's an avid hunter and do-it-yourselfer. He heats his house with wood, which really paid off recently. He grows a big garden every year, and he's really gotten into using a smoker this year. And his first batch of homebrew is in the fermenter as we speak. But like many homesteaders in the Northeast, his uh, his plans were kind of interrupted recently by a chick named Sandy, and he's here today to talk to us about that. And with that, hey, Mike, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. 
Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks for having me today. Hey, uh, you have a website called The Backyard Pioneer. We're actually here to talk about, you know, Hurricane Sandy and what it was like for you guys going through that, which I think is a great and timely topic. But, you know, you're approaching this from the aspects of a prepper, so could you tell people just the, you know, the elevator speech about yourself? Oh, my name is Mike Prunty. I started the BackyardPioneer.com about two years ago. Big fan of the show for a long time, and you were a big inspiration, guys like you and Jason Akers. And just wanted to show what a guy could do with a suburban lot, you know, those skills that the suburban dad's losing I wanted to refine. Very cool. So let's get into the stuff about the hurricane, right? So the thing about a hurricane is it's different than a lot of disasters. It's a It's a long telegraphed punch. It wasn't like... Five minutes before it was going to happen, you knew, or just like an earthquake and it just shows up, you know it's coming. You're a prepper. You've got a lot of things battened down. But I imagine when you start getting the news reports, you start looking at the projected path, and you're like, oh, crap, it is going to come here. Maybe there were some last-minute things that you did. What, what were some of those things that you did that maybe made a difference for you? Well, I'm a little bit ashamed to say, but I was probably the prepper who didn't have a generator. So when I was watching these newscasts, we went through Irene in uh, 2011, and you know, me and my wife were campers, so it wasn't too bad. Three, four days without power, you can manage. But this storm, this time of year, I was got really concerned. So I was the guy at Home Depot on Friday looking for a generator, and there was none to be found on Long Island. I was at Home Depot. I was at Lowe's. Harbor Freight. I could have got one of the fancy Hondas, the big 6500s, but they wanted like four grand for that, and that just was not in my budget at this time of year. So you, you were you're just unable to find one at all. So you had to ride through it without it. Uh, no, I was I was actually lucky enough from having a rapport with the guy down at Home Depot. He whispered in my ear if I was there at six o'clock in the morning when they opened on Saturday, and this is a Saturday before the storm hit, that they were going to be getting a shipment. So I set my alarm five thirty, stopped at Seven Eleven, got a cup of coffee in the paper, and I was sitting in the parking lot at five forty five waiting for Home Depot to open, and that's when the people started pulling in and the line started getting big. I was sitting in my car, I was like. Ah, you know, I really don't want to get into a tugging tug of war over a generator. And I said, me and my wife are fairly prepared. I could ride it out. The generator would be nice. Uh, I'm just not going to deal with this. So I let everyone rush in. It was probably about 10 or 15 people ahead of me. And like locusts, grabbing, there was not a gas can to be found. I got in. I was able to get a generator onto my cart. I wheeled it through. And by 6.15 when I left, all 30 generators that they had got that evening were gone. That's really interesting. Um, I would categorize our area here as uh, better prepared than most as far as the area just because it's the south and it's the Ozarks and the Washita's and, and that's how we are. But we just went through a blizzard, and it was the same thing, only ours was right after the storm because the weather guesser said, oh, you guys will get like one to three inches of snow. We got two inches of ice and, and 14 inches of snow. And uh, with southern pines, they're coming down when that happens. So we were without power for a few days. Some people were without like seven. And and now you know you've been through a power outage, obviously, and you had it. How big a deal is it when you have a generator and the lights are out for more than a few hours? 
It's not it's not that bad at all. My cousin's an electrician. He came and hooked it up to me. We wired it right to the panel with a 30-amp breaker. The the most timely thing, I have to admit, was the show that you and Stephen Harris did on generators. That was truly a lifesaver when it came to getting through Sandy. So I had, I had everything. I had all the conveniences. The big problem we had was I did not have enough fuel stored. I had 15, mm-hmm. I had 15 gallons, and I figured that would be fine. But by the time it really started getting crazy and the gas line started and – you know, fortunately, you did see people fighting in the street on occasion before the cops got a handle on it. You know, when when you're keeping your family warm and the lights on and you're watching your gas dwindle, it, that was a wake-up call for me. Yeah, I think that was a big hole that a lot of people found around here. Um, another thing that I saw when I went out a few days after the thing started to get cleaned up was, you know, I went out basically to stores not to get anything, just to see what was missing. Gas cans, the one-pound propane tanks generators, batteries, and flashlights. We didn't have the the gas shortage you did because basically for three days, no one went anywhere anyway. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, you know, people that could get out were getting a ga- you know, five-gallon can. They weren't trying to fill their cars up or what have you. Um, but I, I, those things, I think a lot of people, even people that are somewhat prepared, maybe don't realize how much fuel is a good idea to have on hand. What, what would you say now? Like, what would be your new goal for stored, stored gasoline? Stored gasoline, I, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm on a quarter-acre suburban lot in the middle of Long Island. I'm still going to keep 15 gallons around, but I definitely need to convert my generator to natural gas. I Having that unlimited fuel supply in the house, it was stupid for me not to be ready with that. I got you. You have natural gas, and I think that's a big game-changer for some people if they have that availability. Yeah, we cook with uh, we cook with it's weird. We we heat with oil, so we have the b- worst of both worlds. And I cook with natural <laughs> gas, so you know I get screwed with four dollars a gallon for home heating oil, and I have to convert. But it's just it's a big nut to tackle. But at least you were warm during this this period of time because it got pretty cold after the storm went through, didn't it? Yeah, thankfully we do heat with wood. I use a wood burning stove to supplement my heat. And you saw a lot of people who probably had the stoves installed in the seventies during the oil crunch. You saw a lot of smoke coming out of chimneys that I hadn't seen before in the neighborhood. So how was it when you were on your generator power? What what was that like being there for an extended period of time, uh, especially as you know with limited fuel supply? It wasn't too bad. You kind of get into the routine. I didn't want to be one of those guys who ran it 24-7. We had that during Irene. It it does get a little bit obnoxious listening to the motors all night long. So I kind of got on to, uh, we got up, got everything settled. About 8 o'clock, I'd turn on the generator. We have a two-year-old son, so he could watch a little bit of TV and brew a cup of coffee, and everyone could take a shower. We'd leave it on for about four hours, and then I'd shut off until about 4 o'clock, and then I'd run it again until 10 Maybe 11 if Sons of Anarchy or The Walking Dead was on, but that was that's kind of how I kept it. I got you. Yeah, we, we ran ours intermittently as it was needed throughout the thing, but it was Christmas, so we even powered the tree. Uh, the neighbors came by, and they're like, you know, how are you all doing? They walk in, the tree's lit up. TV's on, coffee's brewing. It's, 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 it's enjoyable to be able to look after yourself during these things, and I think most of our neighbors, we live in a rural area, so they were like, you know, big whoop, we're doing the same thing. But in your area, I imagine there were a lot of people that were far less prepared than you guys. And what was their reaction to, you know, you guys being able to to, to basically look after yourself and the skills and knowledge? I mean, were you able to share anything, help anybody? 
Yeah, my, my neighbor who lives directly next door, we were able to throw His wife's pregnant, so we threw an extension cord over. And the generator I had wasn't big enough to have the oil burners on both houses running, but I was able to give him some lights. You know, when I tell him when I, my pot of coffee was done brewing so he could brew his, he could have his microwave going a little bit. But uh, when it started to get cold, he actually had to leave because, the house, you know, his wife was pregnant and he was getting down to 55, 56 degrees in the house at night, so... He got a little concerned, and the older couple across the street, they were happy. I had a couple of cords of wood, so I brought a wheelbarrow over to them and helped them get their fireplace going, so they were at least able to stay warm. Uh, I think it was an eye-opener, but after Irene, last year, you know, it was only 10 months before that we went through this. The same thing, the trees came down, the power was out, people were out up to 14 days. Didn't have the devastation in the news story that Sandy was. But, you know, Long Island's in the crosshairs, and it just seems every couple of years we get whacked. And it doesn't seem like the average person up there learns anything from it. They always say, like, we're, it's going to be different next time or whatever, but it's, it, it, I don't know, it ends up being like a lot of New Year's resolutions where uh, I remember one time I used to go to a gym, and all of a sudden there was, like, all of these, you know, like, there was lines everywhere for machines and equipment and all, and, I asked the guy, and I didn't even think of it, you know. I said, what's going on, man? You, you, this is annoying, you know. And he goes, oh, don't worry, Jack. Uh, it'll be a couple of weeks. It'll be back to the way it was. It's New Year's. Yeah. They, and, you know, and it, it's almost like the same thing happens. People get these disasters. They go out and they buy some stuff, but then they just kind of forget about it and go back to sleep. Yeah, I, I think the low point was I, I ran out to get – I did a BJ's run. I figured, you know what, let me get a couple more things. It's always that – I don't want to say hoarding mentality, but another case of water, and I was going to feel good. And when I got there, there was nothing left on shelves. But I did get to see a woman leave with a case of Pellegrino, and I kid you not, the Sharper Image Survival Kit. Oh, no. Yeah. I, the I, Sharper I, Image. Do you have any idea what's in the Sharper Image Survival Kit? I'm not familiar with that little oh, thing. It looked like a cheap LED flashlight, a cheap multi-tool. It was all anodized blue. It was it was a travesty. Two kids in the cart, a bunch of frozen food. It was the thing preppers and guys who are into survival joke about all the time, but seeing it in person actually was kind of shocking. Wow. Well, the Sharper Image Survival Tool, folks, just so you know, just because you heard it on the air here does not mean it carries my endorsement because it most certainly does not. Would, would you would you say, uh, Mike, that maybe there was like an indispensable prep, something that was like worth its weight in gold when you were in the middle of all this? You know, Jack, it's actually not an item, but to me it's having decent neighbors because you, you can't get through this thing alone. You know, the guy across the street, he's a mechanic. He was able to, I had a little bit of problems with my generator. He was able to give me a hand with that. When my mother-in-law called and saw that the gas shortages were coming, he was the first guy went over and knocked on his door, and me and him went, went out and got gas together. So just having a rapport, knowing the people who are around you, that I think that whole lone wolf scenario everyone has in their mind just isn't, isn't a good concept. I, I don't think it, it has anything long-term or even in a short-term disaster. It, it, what, what what was it like for you? I mean, like, what, what what did you guys just pretty much get like a bunch of rain and wind and and have the power out? Were you guys hit with some flooding? I mean, what was it like the you know the day after when you walked out your front door? What were you looking at? We got the typical hurricane stuff. We were we're not on the coast. We're smack dab in the middle of the island, so I'm seven miles either way to water. Uh, we got hit. It was mainly the wind and the rain that 
traditional hurricane type stuff. We had good gusts. You could see the trees coming down. Um, we were sitting back in the kitchen playing Uno, and we didn't even notice the power went out until I have those little uh, LED emergency lights. They popped on, and that's when we were like, wow, this is what's uh, – we're getting a storm here. And you could see the transformers exploding. They were lighting up the sky, and when I walked out in the morning, you know, tree took out my fence. There was a tree took out the pole at the end of the road. Um Walking down just a few houses, there was a tree on a house, took out guy's garage, his minivan, and his brand-new charger in the driveway. Uh, a lot of stuff like that, ripped up sidewalks where I live, tree-lined streets, the big oaks. So when they came down, they ripped up the curbs, ripped up the sidewalks, people's lawns, primary down in the street sparking, which I was amazed that we still had Halloween around here. So kids were out, and the, the primary was still on and sizzling. I'm a, I'm a lineman for the telephone company, so I was telling people, like, this stuff's can't go near it. I don't know why you have your kids out. Just think of yeah. lack, of, lack of common sense. Yeah, you got hot lines and your kids are wandering around it. That's another thing. How long did you guys stay down for? We were down. We were eight days without power. We went eight down. Days. Yeah, that, that Monday the 29th, and we got power back, I believe it was the 4th, right around uh, dinner time it came back on. It's usually about four days when people start to get fed up and start blaming the people that are trying to help them and and get really angry about it if they don't have any source of backup power. But, I mean, I found that even with a generator, living with a generator for about a week is about where you're like, I'm really ready for this to be over. Exactly. That's when it becomes work. Before that, you're like, hey, look at me. You know, I'm Mike. I have some prepping skills. And But after that, you're tired of smelling like gas, tired of doing oil changes on the generator, tired of going. I was really trying to use this as a test run. So every night I went out, I made sure I put my generator away. So dragging it all the way around the house and locking it up in the garage, locking the gates, living on with headlamps on. It, it does get it gets tedious. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, how long did it take before you guys started to see like any level of responders on on your streets or the surrounding streets? People actually showing up to do something to fix something. Probably it was the the second day. Our, our local power company you saw them driving around, you know, doing the pre survey work. They did take care of some of the emergency stuff, which people weren't too happy about because if the lines are down and they have to shut off the circuit. You may have power after the hurricane. The skies may be blue. The clouds may be out. And then the electric guy comes, and he's the one who shuts you down. That kind of made for some bad feelings in the neighborhood. Yeah. But I think people just don't understand. Like, like we, we got to fix the other people's stuff, and we can't die when we're doing it or nobody wins. And and we did have some of that, too. We got our power back, and then a day later, we went down for about six hours. And that was my wife's like, well, what do you think happened now? I'm like, they're, they're fixing other people's lines. And uh, I don't know about you, but, like, my heart goes out to those guys because, it, it, like, in this last storm, they were out there. The ice was still flying, and they were out there doing what they could. It's it's a dangerous job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been doing it uh, almost 17 years now. I've traveled to – I was in Watertown, northern New York, for the ice storm in 98. Uh, we had did Irene. There was that October storm they had in Connecticut. I think that was two years ago. I was away for that. So were you were you called in once this kind of started to get back to normal? So what is to do your job locally? Um, did or did they like did they basically bring in outsiders initially so that you could take care of your family? Because that's an interesting scenario. It's kind of like the police officer called to deal with a riot when the riot's happening in his backyard. So what what what, what kind of went on there? 
Well, unfortunately, I had had an on-the-job accident at the end of September where I... Oh, okay. Yeah, I, rec- I had to have surgery, and I cut a tendon going to my thumb. The, the, my lineman knife slipped, and <sighs> yeah, it turned into a fiasco. So I was actually doing all this one-handed, and that's where the neighbors come in. Because my, my neighbor, he saw me outside struggling. I had bought this stupid thing at Home Depot to clean the gutters, and he just came right over, got the ladder out, went up there and cleaned the gutters where I sat and watched. And I think that's really where community comes into it. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think that's a, there's a lesson there because you hear from the lone wolf or tough ass survival guy or whatever he wants to pers- you know personify himself as, and I don't think people realize how a lot of times you're one cut, one sprained ankle, one fall from not being even if you are that guy day to day. You find out how human you are with one injury, and like you said, a, a, your thumb. That's uh, there's a reason we have disposable digits, and we're uh, masters of our domain with them. And it's a big thing to lose. Yeah, you know, I, I looked when it when it did happen. You look down at it, you're like, eh, we're pretty good at judging. I'm like, ah, that's seven or eight stitches, no problem. But then on the way to the hospital, I noticed my thumb wasn't moving, and that's when I knew I was in for it. Ugh. Yeah, tendon and ligament injuries are are really gnarly. I, I when I was reading your outline and all, you didn't have anything in there about, it, so I didn't know you were dealing with it like that. And I feel bad for you, but it probably does teach you a lot about the value of community. Yeah, and the other weakness that did expose a little bit was, you know, I'm that typical typical guy. You know, I take care of the generator, I take care of the wood stove, and not that my wife's not willing to step up and take a swing at things, but. You know, she just didn't have the knowledge to to run that stuff by herself. So, when if I did have to run out to hand therapy or something like that, it was okay. You need to do turn off the generator here. Don't worry about touching the panel. I'll take care of that when I get home. And so now I've definitely included her in, in sort of disaster planning. Well, kind of the one we found as a whole is I have a Troy built six K generator, and she has a real hard time starting it, pulling that starter rope. So once we get moved, we're probably looking at getting something that's either electric start or uh, automatic backup. And I think that's another thing that we look at. Well, I'll, I'll just go start it. It's easy. Well, what if you had broken your collarbone? Um, if somebody had broke my collarbone uh, in, in high school, I could tell you your collarbone's connected to your, your little toe on your opposite foot. Um, it's a painful experience, and it, it pretty much takes you out. Yeah, it, you know, you used to being the guy around the house, and thankfully – you know, I didn't have. I had the one tree come down and took out the fence, but it was definitely hit on my pride. Here, I have my nice still chainsaw all ready to go, and had to pay the neighbor kid fifty bucks to cut up the tree for me because I'm sitting here in a cast. So yeah, 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 and it happens. And I mean, that's the other, that's what I, I've always said with preps, like having things like because like with this disaster, you're not calling a tree surgeon or something like that because it's the whole island. But a small localized, like a tornadic event, sometimes will just hit a small area. And guys always say, well, I'll take care of it myself. I'll be the one cutting my, my neighbor out or what have you. But not if the tree comes through your roof and lands on you in the bed. Uh, and, you know, stuff like that happens. Exactly. The, you know, the guy down the street, when this tree came down and took out two cars and he had to leave his house in the middle of the storm, it really made you say, you know, wow, I, I'm, I'm blessed that nothing like that happens. And Yeah, yeah. Did you maybe find some pretty decent holes in your preps or some things you'd want to do differently going forward? Definitely the big one was the fuel situation for the generator. I'm ashamed that I didn't have, A, have a generator to begin with because I didn't have one. I got stuck with a no-name. So as I've been looking to convert it to natural gas, I'm 
not finding parts. I, I'm the kind of guy I like to have some spares laying around. I get a cheap, cheap China-made engine that I can't find stuff for. So that's going to be going up on Craigslist soon, and hopefully I'll be able to get something with, like you said, a Troy built or a Honda or a Tecumseh motor in it, something that I can maintain myself, that I can easily convert to natural gas, um, that has resale value if I do want to change something else. I've been cruising Craigslist. You talk about that mentality of you get the, the disaster happens and then people forget about it. Craigslist before Christmas around here was all sorts of lightly used generators, people who ran out, bought them, ran them for two hours, and then just don't want to either have it laying around or didn't have the means to pay for it when the credit card bill came due. So if you if you need a cheap generator, this Long Island and New Jersey are the place to get them right now. Yeah, I'm thinking about looking around here. Uh, Tractor Supply sells these ones. I don't remember who makes them. They they look like something like like almost like a like a Bass Pro or a Cabela's branded thing, but it's neither one. Uh, and they sell those for like two forty nine. You know, every day of the week, they're like 1,800 watts. They're cheapo little generators. And they sold, the guy told me they had 50 in stock the day before the storm. They sold about half of them the day before the storm, and then they got wiped out the day after the storm once people could get out. And uh, I'm thinking those things might be going for 99 bucks. And uh, for 99 bucks, I'll buy a couple of them if I can find them. Because I think a lot of people do that. They buy stuff, and then, and then they dump it. Um, but I'm with you on like your primary system. You really need to have something you can get parts for. It has good, you know, uh, good service manuals for. And, and if you want to do a conversion, you can do conversion for. I don't know if you can convert what I have to natural gas since I don't have it. It wasn't a, a big concern when I bought it. But uh, I do. I can tell you that the the Troy builds the you know the six Ks, the five Ks, those, those, those generators in that uh, realm, they have a lot of power and they run really, really well. I mean, we've had no problems with ours. All I got to do is an oil change after this last uh, workout period. But I think that's something else people need to realize with those is like maintenance needs to be part of this, even during the disaster. Yeah. I went the first 10 hours just as a break in period. Then I changed the oil. Um, I went right to mobile one, uh, 10 W 30. I did, Probably every 20 hours I was changing the oil in it. The thing was keeping the lights on, keeping my family warm and safe, and I treated it like a member of the family, i got to admit. Definitely got babied around here. So you do other stuff, though, because like you have this site called the Backyard Pioneer, and you do gardening and stuff like that. Um, I know you're getting later into the year up there as this happened with you know a lot of stuff going to down from frost and, and all anyway, but did you get set back on maybe some of your gardening activities and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, I, I, my goal for last year was to get my shed done. I wanted, I got an old, bought my house about eight years ago, and the last thing I'm getting to is finally rebuilding the shed. So I had my my idea of building it into a nice garden shed where I could have some wood stored out of the rain. My composting area would be to the side of it. My wife listens to this where hopefully someday I could have rabbits or chickens, but that just didn't get done this year. So that's definitely on tap for 2013. Cool. So, hey, I'm reading some of the stuff on your blog here, and uh, I'm reading one post, Fresh Herbs, My Addiction and Secret Shame. And it says, you are Mike and you are an herb addict. Yes, definitely. Culinary herbs only, Jack. Uh, Okay. (laughs) my My wife was really the one who introduced me to cooking with fresh herbs. My idea of herbs was always just the dried McCormick stuff, which does have its place in cooking. But once you get used to cooking with the fresh stuff, it's 
and and they're pricey too. You, you spend a fortune, so we definitely we grew some of our own herbs this year, and we were happy with them. Just nothing too crazy. We did rosemary, oregano, thyme, but it makes such a difference in your cooking. And even did some work with self-watering containers too. Yes, I. I, I my sister-in-law, is, she's a waitress, and I bug her, and she brings me home pickle buckets, and I get them all cleaned up, and I've built a few of them. I like them. They're neat to have around. They're definitely a conversational piece if when you have a barbecue. Very cool. So what are some of the other projects you got going on there? Well, I, I've all gotten to a little bit of amateur gunsmithing, nothing too crazy, fooling around with my uh, Mossberg 500 or my Ruger 1022 and a little bit of uh, – Building some ARs, stuff like that. Nothing, nothing, nothing too crazy yet, but definitely that piques my interest. Very cool. So, um, if you had any like final words of advice here for folks uh, that, uh, as far as prepping for the stuff that does happen, I mean, there's all the Mad Max stuff out there and all, and you can only say so much to that group. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that is going to happen to people sooner or later. What are, would be your your just general advice to folks? I think you offer some of the best advice out there. Listen to Jack every day. Uh, yeah, I, unfortunately, uh, that's self-serving, but thank you. <laughs> oh well, it, it, it's I. Uh, my first wife, I lost her to cancer uh, five years ago, and some of the stuff you've talked about over the years just really resonated with me because being out of debt was so important. When she was sick, being able to be home with her and not worrying about having to squeeze every last hour of overtime in, being that slave to your stuff. You know, when when, when you have the debt, the debt owns you. And, and having your affairs in order, not have to worry about that. Having the term life insurance like you talk about, that stuff was just all so important. Yeah, I think it is, and I think it gets it gets really overlooked, and it's the, it's the practical side, the pragmatic side that people overlook. They're ready for the end of the world, but they're not ready to lose a job. And you got to just look at it as to which one is is more likely. But uh, as sorry as I am to hear that you know you had to go through that, it sounds like you've kind of got your your life together again, and I'm, I'm I'm happy for that for you. It sounds like you got through this thing uh, probably better than most. Yeah, I, I like to think so. Uh, you know, I'm I, just a regular suburban dad. I have a few things laying around the house that makes my life easier when the power goes out. There's no bunker in the backyard, no tinfoil involved. But I don't know why that message doesn't resonate better with people. Well, hopefully it will, and hopefully uh, hearing your interview for the, the average Joe out there will uh, will maybe help them uh, get off the pot, so to speak, and be prepared because – Stuff happens, man, and and you guys are you're you're living. You guys, like you say, you get hit every few years with something. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a blizzard or a hurricane, it's out there and it happens. And I'd much rather be safe and warm at home than one of these people down in the Rockaways picking out of dumpsters. Uh, absolutely. One final thought before I let you go. Um, we often hear about people think about like New York and like being like the worst place to be in a disaster if something goes wrong, especially large scale. And this was a large, you know, apocalypse or not. This was a big disaster. To me, it's always seemed like places like Long Island, they operate on a different vibe than uh, some of like the, the, the seedier places or New York City itself or East Jersey. Uh, like Newark, where they have a sign that says "Stop the murders." When you get off the airplane, it's the first thing you see. Um, Long Island seems to be much more of the the people that kind of do look after each other. Would you say that after going through this? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it, the further east you go, you know, you're 
in Brooklyn and Brooklyn or Queens, you, you're you're the city. Even parts of Western Nassau, they just you're living on top of people. With the suburb I grew up in, I grew up in Farmingville when it still had farms. You know, the further east you go, the more New England I want to say Long Island becomes. The more community based, you get away from that urban vibe. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. My experience with people that have been from that area has always been that it's it's hard to tell if the person is from uh, Long Island or you know maybe uh, you know rural New Hampshire, uh, other than maybe the accent's different. That's that's about the only way. But the way they think, the way they act, the way they look after each other seems very much in that that kind of traditional manner. And that's that's good to hear that that's still going on up there. And uh, good to hear you guys. You know, held it together because it doesn't sound like you had any dealing with any rioters or looters on your street or anything like that. No, not 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 at all. The the only thing I did see was the fist fights at the gas stations. And when I came home from that, I said, "I'm not leaving unless I absolutely have to until this thing is over." Well, cool, man. I'm glad it worked out for you, and I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate the opportunity. And again, folks, uh, you guys want to get by uh, Mike's blog, The Backyard Pioneer. And uh, check out his blog because he's got some really interesting stuff there. And as now promised, we have a second interview today with Craig, the Southern Maryland beekeeper. Uh, Craig became obsessed with beekeeping in early 2009. He quickly realized in his uh, mind anyway that the traditional age-old methods of beekeeping no longer fit today's sustainably-minded hobby beekeepers. And he, beekeepers. He came up with a quest for more sensible methods, and that evolved into hosting and producing the Organically Managed Beekeeping Podcast, something I definitely recommend if you're interested in bees that you subscribe to. The show mainly interviews uh, authors and scientists and interesting beekeepers from all walks of life. Craig is most interested in non-conventional approaches to beekeeping and focuses on alternatives to chemical use and other forms of industry exploitation. The second focus is simply keeping bees in a way that works with their natural tendencies rather than against them. He's going to tell us about a lot of things today. He's pretty much got me sold on Moire Hives as a kind of a, a meeting of the roads between Langstroth and, uh, and, t- and t- typical top bar hives. Uh, he's going to uh, give us a lot of information that even though we've talked a lot about bees in the back uh, the past, we haven't gotten before. And uh, sometimes, you know, things just work out the right way. And I feel like uh, the last guy that we had on bees and now having Craig on are the two anchormen that we needed for this series that are going to bring it all together and coalesce it for us from two different viewpoints. And I feel after these this interview that you're going to hear today and the interview we did with the last bee guy, I'm more confident about adding bees to our homesteading in 2013 than I, I ever have before. And I hope that'll do the same thing for you guys. And uh, with that, hey, Craig, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Hey, uh, I told you when we were chatting offline, you're kind of batting cleanup here, the anchor man on the beekeeping series. So I thought that was a cool thing for you to be to do. And especially, uh, I think you're a first person out of the Northeast. So I think we've covered the entire United States with beekeepers as well. Well, good deal. I'm glad to be batting clean up, and hopefully I can bring some fresh ideas and uh, talk about some things that haven't been brought up yet. Cool, man. So how did you uh, how'd you get involved with beekeeping? I think you're, in your little write-up for me, you said you're obsessed with it. <laughs> Admittedly, I am. Uh, I think one day I just noticed that I wasn't seeing honeybees. So, you know, I'm a, a child of the 70s. I'm giving away my age there, but... I can remember running around and looking at clover patches and having to really look at where I'm stepping in bare feet to not get stung. And somewhere along the line into adulthood, that 
you know, I'm not seeing honeybees anymore. And it just clicked one day, you know, what's going on? And uh, not not long after that, CCD sort of hit the media and that all exploded. And I read a few articles and that kind of led to an interest and it blossomed into a hobby. And uh, I started reading. And the more I read about it, the more I realized and noticed that there was something fundamentally wrong with how traditional beekeeping is being taught and how they're trying to do it. And they're, everybody's kind of scratching their heads, wondering why the bees are dying. And to me, it just looks so obvious. So I studied for about a year because I had just missed the time when it was um, appropriate to get bees, which is in the spring. And uh, there's a relatively short nectar flow here in Maryland. So if you don't get bees by the end of April, you're kind of done for the year. So I studied for the rest of that year up until, you know, January of the next and uh, ordered my first hive and just went from there. Actually, I ordered five. I'm not, <laughs> you know, when you talk about being obsessed with bees, normal people start with one or two. I started with five. I really dove into it. That sounds like it. So you do what you call natural beekeeping. Now, is that a hive thing or is it a chemical-free thing or is it both? It's both. It's actually a philosophy. So, you know, when you go to... Uh, to one of these classes and they teach you, they call it short courses when you join a club and they go and teach you how to teach or how to keep bees, they generally are teaching you a method that's over 100 years old. It's essentially it hasn't changed since the late 1800s. And it's a good system, but it's kind of built for, uh, you know, livestock uh maximizing production you know you always want your cows to produce more milk you want to keep getting the most that you can the biggest bang for the buck and in the late 1800s it was a real push to develop beekeeping in that same manner and that's kind of just been going all along since then and the commercial beekeeping methods of chemical application uh, the management style the manipulations that the beekeepers do the treatments that they apply, whether the bees need it or not. All of that is a, the commercial mindset. And unfortunately, it's being taught to hobby beekeepers, and I think that's just its just wrong. There's other, a lot of other ways to do it, natural ways to do it, no chemicals. With that in mind, what do you think a beginning beekeeper should consider in order to get started You know, the right way? Well, they should probably be... Right from the get-go, they should be thinking about how they want to keep bees. Um, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you have to make in the beginning that are going to kind of force you to choose which direction you're going to go. So, for instance, um, do you want to have to fumble with a honey extractor? You know, that big giant, you know, stainless steel drum where you put your frames in and you and you spin it. Then you that's a pretty expensive device. And uh, the cleanup is not fun either. There's another methodology. You could go with crushing strain, which is essentially where you would harvest by taking your comb honey out, cutting it out of the frame, and you can drop it in a five-gallon bucket or a pail. And I've got a, a, a paint uh, knife or a scraper, and I duct taped it to the end of a, a broom handle. This is all I bought the stuff brand new, so it's good and clean. And just kind of stab down into that bucket for 10 or 15 minutes until you, all the honeycombs are pierced. And it turns into this sort of slush that you can then run through a paint strainer into your second bucket. And then you, then you can go through the spigot right into a bottle. So you can save all that expense. And then you get the benefit of having all that great beeswax for candles and all sorts of other good stuff. So those are the kinds of decisions 
that you need to make in the beginning to really get going. Another big decision, and I bring this up because I have a bad back, so you have to ask yourself, do you want to be doing heavy lifting constantly, which would be the traditional way of beekeeping with the, the Langstroth boxes, which are hugely heavy. You know, A full one would be probably over 100 pounds with, uh, with honey packed in it. Do you want to be the type of beekeeper that only has to lift that weight occasionally? That would lead you to a Warre hive, which is a different design, different method. Or do you want to lift heavy weights? Never. And that would be something like a Kenyan top bar hive. So different styles, different choices, just things to think about in the beginning. What is your preferred hive? What do you, what do you keep most of your bees in? Well, uh, sort of the fun of beekeeping for me, the obsession part of it, is just experimenting. So right now I'm split between um, Langstroth hives, Kenyan top bar hives, and my latest fad, or I, I, actually I think it's the way that I'm going to go in the future, is the Warre hive, which I think is just really neat. That was developed by a gentleman over in France, and um, just the way that you can get, just come along and take the top boxes right off and and that's all you have to do. That's the only manipulation. I think it it suits my particular style. Could you explain that hive a bit better? We had one person on that talked about it before, but a lot of people may not have heard that interview. And I, I think it's an amazing kind of somewhere in between the, the two worlds, you know. So explain it a little bit better. It is. It really is. And it's uh, it fits a great little niche there. So with, so uh, in order to understand that one better, you have to kind of understand the Langstroth hive, which has been adopted in this country as a sort of standard. So if you go and get a beekeeping catalog, pretty much you know, 99% of the stuff in there is built around this Langstroth hive, which is essentially a, the two bottom boxes or the brood nest, and then you put your honey supers or your honey boxes on top of that. And... So there's a lot of manipulation involved with that type of hive because the brood nest is always at the bottom. So as the beekeeper, you're constantly striving to keep the bees down, keep the bees down. And they're wanting to expand, so there's this push-pull tug-of-war between you and the bees. And and in order to examine that brood nest, you have to take anything, the top boxes off. You have to lift them off. And um, some of my hives, when they're boomers, they can go six, seven boxes high. And they're already on an 18-inch stand off the ground, so you're lifting that much weight six or seven feet off the ground. It's just uh, kind of precarious. So with the Warre hive, you you start the hive in one box. That's where you would put the package of bees or where your nucleus colony would start in that box. And then you lift that box up and you add the new empty box underneath, and the bees go down. And what happens is, as you keep doing that, when the bees go down, the, the baby bees hatch out, and they continue building comb in a downward motion. They backfill the comb over the top with honey. So if you think about that, what's happening is as the, the hive is growing towards the sky, all the honey is being pushed upwards, nice and conveniently for you to come along and just take that top box off and walk away. That, that's really cool, and um, in that is is it based? They're basically a vertical top bar hive, right? The combs being built on the same type of uh, bar structure. Exactly, exactly. Okay. It is technically a top bar hive because there's no frame in there. There's just a, a bar that's placed over the top, and the bees build down from that. Now, I'm not a beekeeper yet, and I'm not allowed to buy anything else until we move. 
Uh, because my wife's right about that. <laughs> so forgive me if I get this wrong, but the way I'm seeing this then is a lot of the people that use the land straw highs would say, well, the thing is you cut the the caps off and then you spin it and then the, the combs there that can be reused, so it's less work for the bees to do. There's sort of kind of something like that going on here because instead of the bees using the comb in one chamber for brooding and one chamber for honey protection, uh, production, they're using the comb for, for brooding and then they're using it for honey production. So they're getting to use the comb twice without you touching it and then they can keep making because bees make combs. That's what they do. It's not like it's a, a, a huge thing for them, but there is some model of efficiency there at the bee level, isn't there? Definitely is. Definitely is. And there's more involved with that. There's other benefits, too, that, that I haven't talked about yet, and that is uh, comb rotation. That's hugely important for the health of a beehive. So wax is lipophilic. It absorbs chemicals. So, you know, bees can fly six miles or, you know, the people say more or less, but uh, they can fly quite a ways to find forage, and they're going to pick up, you know, yard sprays and chemicals and and crop treatments and whatever and bring it back and it's going to build up in concentration in that comb and i think even even the oldest old timer hopefully is on some kind of a cold uh, comb rotation schedule three years at at the most i would say but with the worry it's just kind of built in you're automatically harvesting that comb off the top you're doing crush and strain and so it's a it's a win-win in that category and I guess maybe the exchange is maybe there's a little less of a honey yield, but there's a much higher wax yield. Exactly. And some people, you know, it's kind of up for debate whether or not you're sacrificing honey there. Uh, the, there's, the bees are more efficient in a war aid too, because it's perfectly square. And so during the wintertime, the bees have to expend resources to keep the cluster warm. They don't hibernate like some people think they do. They, uh, they're, they're alive in there. They disengage their wing muscles and, and flex those muscles to generate heat. But they're, um, they keep going all year long. And if you think about a cluster about the size of a basketball, maybe a little bit smaller, volleyball probably, that's going to fit more efficiently inside of a square box than it will in a rectangle in terms of insulating the air and how much space has to be heated and whatnot. So a war A is more efficient in that category as well. Now, I've talked to beekeepers that do you know, 100% conventional method with chemicals and all, and they say basically, I have got to use chemicals or I'm, I'm going to lose my bees. And I think that there's truth and fiction there, like, yeah, but it's because of the way you're doing things. So how do we get to a point here where we have basically our, we have, you know, Keepers that have their bees basically dependent on – we have chemically dependent bees is the only way I can put it. That's true. We do. And it's just the, the model that, that we've set up here. And, um, you know, because you know, we've – this the chemical uh, – the commercial world has just tried to get as much as possible. It's a numbers game. You know, I, I really feel for these guys because it's the difference between putting food on their table and not having enough money to pay the bills, these commercial beekeepers. So they treat and have treated whether – they need to or not. It's a regimen. You know, they feed high fructose corn syrup. They put the antibiotics in the hive, whether the hive is sick or not. And they've developed super bugs and super pests. And, um, you know, one interesting thing is probably good to mention here. A couple of years ago, they sequenced the genome of the honeybee. 
and they came up with some interesting results. They actually didn't find as many genes associated with an immune system as they thought they would have. And it really got the scientists thinking about it. And the, the theories are that a substance that the bees produce called propolis, or other, also known as bee glue, it's essentially plant resins and um, some other magic injected by the bees, enzymes and things. It's a sticky substance, like a putty sort of thing. And the bees use it to seal up holes in the hive, and they also coat the inside of the hive. And it makes a real sterile environment. So this stuff is really uh, it's antibacterial, antifungal. And if you're keeping bees in South America near the rainforest, they've found this stuff to be anti-cancer. It's amazing. So really neat stuff. The old-time beekeepers pop a piece of it in their mouth, uh, you know, to fight gingivitis. And mm. you can use this to treat wounds. And, you know, if you're a prepper, <laughs> this, this a beehive is a cornucopia of, uh, of things. Honey. You've got pollen, you've got honey, you've got propolis. I mean, and I've often kind of wondered on that is, like, the entire hive, when run properly, is like that is the immune system, so to speak. It has all of this uh, this built-in uh, anti-bacterial, uh, antifungal, antiviral component to it. So the bee only has to develop so much of an immune system individually because the collective whole has this collective immunity if it's balanced. You hit it right on the head. That's exactly right. And so... You know, think about this for a second. Commercial beekeepers think propolis is a pain in the butt because it's gummy, it's sticky, it slows them down. You know, it makes the frames hard to pull out. Yeah, I so, remember the first time I got some natural honey that had a big old chunk of it in there. I was like, what the hell is this big red lump? <laughs> uh, and then later I found out what it was. And it was like, that's really cool. But I'm like, what, what is this thing? Is it like a dead bee or what? You know, and for all I know, maybe it was uh, inside there. But uh yeah, it, 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 I can see how somebody that doesn't understand its value would say this is a pain in the butt. Yeah, it slows them down. You know, it's like I said, it's a numbers game. It's about money and efficiency, and and so how crazy is it for these beekeepers and the queen breeders to then try to breed this trait out? They've been doing that. So I mean, that, talk about an Achilles heel. You've got the your keeper. Your you know, you're the bee, and your guardian is actually breeding you to have a weaker immune system. So I think we're coming full circle here and in, in me trying to explain how we've been caught onto this chemical treadmill. I mean, we're not uh, – I think we're, the, we're responsible for it. We created the monster. It's almost like we do that everywhere we go. I know. You know? I mean, uh, you look at – we've done the same things to ourselves with antibiotics. That's right. You know, and, and uh, you guess, you know, we, we, I guess if we do something to ourselves, we're probably likely to do it to something else. But when it, when it comes to keeping your bees alive without chemical treatments, you know, other than using the right type of hive, because you even do some stuff with Leinster hives, so it's not just a hive thing. What are some of the things that you have to do to, to, to maintain bees that way? Well, ideally you'd want to, you know, a new beekeeper would want to start out with bees that are already past this hump. Uh, but if you can't do that, you've already, you already have bees, then you're facing a tough choice. You know, you have to look for your strong hives, and you have to sort of draw a hard line. You know, and some people call it the bond method. You know, live and let die, which is pretty hardcore. If you have a lot of money invested, it's 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 kind of tough to to see a sick and ailing uh, uh, hive and not try to do something to help it along. 
But if you think about it, you're not really helping. You're just allowing a sick hive to stay around and put its drones out there to keep its genetics in your apiary, which is in the long run not the right choice, in my opinion. So some of the things you can do is just you know make those tough calls, call your weak hives, um, trade with other beekeepers in your area that don't treat, look for treatment-free bees and start to move those into your population and cycle yours out. And if you must treat, Choose some of the f- more friendly treatments that are not chemical-based and, uh, and try to do it that way, slowly. Is, is one way I can improve my genetics might be to requeen a weak hive with a, a, a queen that's already been um, fertilized? Because she's bringing completely new genetics to that hive, then. That's true. But unless you really know the lineage of where that queen is coming from, uh, I wouldn't, you know, you, you, you really got to look at that. So... You know, if you can get a queen from, say, a, and I haven't brought this term up yet during the interview, a small cell beekeeper, if you can get a queen from somebody like that, generally small cell and treatment-free go hand in hand because there's a kind of an underground movement of people that have had an aha moment, an epiphany here. And uh, the scientists are saying that it's not real, but, you know, me and hundreds and hundreds of other people know that it is real. And so if you can plug into somebody like that, and get some of those genetics in your hive. That's that's really what you want to do. So, how should a person go about picking that right beehive? I mean, you kind of covered that already, but like a person that's just going, I'm new, and I'm you know, I don't, I'm not, I've never done this before, and I just want to get into this and, and start having some bees. I want to take care of them the right way. I want to be able to get some honey out of this. What are some of the questions they should be asking themselves? Well, so they want to, so they're going to have to contact. The bee breeder or a supplier, and we're in the day, this day and age. I think for the fifth straight year, demand has exceeded supply. So you want to get your orders in early. But so in January, when you're thumbing through all your the your sources and trying to pick who you're going to be buy bees from, you want to compile a list of questions. You want to find out if they're treatment free. You want to find out, uh, you know, how they treat their bees, and if they start talking about you know these chemical treatments and whatnot, I would just you know, politely end the call and move on. And if I ran out of options, I might go back to them, but they certainly would not be my primary choice. I would seek out small cell beekeepers, treatment-free beekeepers, and natural beekeepers, people that are advertising themselves to have those type of bees in stock. And more and more of those are becoming available, by the way. It's kind of like if you're an employer, how do you make sure you don't have drug addicts working for you? You pre-screen them before they come in. So instead of sending your employees to drug rehab, you hire employees who aren't on drugs in the first place. That's a really good analogy. Yeah. So how many hives do you think a person should start with? The, the standard answer I always hear is two. You know, that probably is the best answer because uh, that's going to give you a basis for comparison. You know, if something goes wrong with one, you can kind of look at the other one. If you only had one hive and it was a, you know, it was a slow bloomer, you might think that was normal, but if you have two to compare it to, then uh, you can spot trouble in the other one a lot easier. It also gives you some resources if something goes wrong. You know, if, if one hive is a dink, or that's what we call a hive that's not taking off as fast as it probably should, you can supplement it with brood or frames from the other hive and things like that. And if you happen to pinch a queen or roll her by accident by pulling a frame up, 
any number of things could happen and probably will if you're a new beekeeper. Having that second hive as an insurance policy is fantastic. In a perfect world, if uh, if I was talking to somebody and they said, you know, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do, I would tell them to get two hives and then and try to start a nuke or a nucleus colony, which is essentially a, a mini beehive. And that really gives you an insurance policy there. So can you describe exactly how that works? Yeah, nucleus colony is sort of a slimmed down. So let me back up here a little bit. So one of the ways that I keep bees, I don't use the standard 10-frame box. I'm a big fan of the 8-frame, which is you know a little narrower, a lot less heavy, and kind of more in line with uh, the internal size of a tree trunk in nature. I, I kind of go with how I think bees survive in the wild rather than work against them. So a nucleus colony would be a five-frame hive, even more narrow. And you can just you know, put two or three of those vertical and start a little mini colony there. And you can even overwinter that. And that's sort of an expendable insurance policy. You're not raising that for uh, honey production or anything like that. It's strictly for increases or creating new colonies. Or like I said, the insurance policy, if you, if you have a queen that's not producing as she, as she should, you've got one ready on hand, essentially banked right there in your nucleus colony. Or you may have a friend down the street that gets in a pinch and, and you, you save them with your nucleus colony. Gotcha. Now, you used a term earlier. You didn't really explain what it means, though. What is small cell? What do you mean by that? Small cell. So we had this really nasty mite called the varroa strike in this country a number of years ago, and it absolutely devastated the, the commercial beekeeping world. Huge losses. And this mite is still around, and it's, it's probably pretty much in almost every hive that's out there. It's, um, you know, if I was a, to kind of put it in scale, it'd be, you know, human scale, it'd be like having a, 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 like something like the size of a sea turtle stuck on your back, you know, sucking blood out of you. I mean, that's really how this thing is in scale to a bee. It's, uh, it's vicious. And it, it gets into the hive. It uh, reproduces very quickly. And it prefers the drone cells, which are the, the male bee. It's a bigger cell. And it stays capped longer because it takes longer for that, um, that pupae to mature and for the cell to be uncapped. And that little bit extra time that female mite can reproduce up to two, three, four extra offspring. So somehow those mites can smell the pheromones and determine which cells are female bees and which cells are the male drones, which they prefer. And they flock to the drones. And they get under that capping. And, uh, and that's I bring that up because that particular mite is not native to this country. So there's a different type of a honeybee, the Asian honeybee, Apis serrani. That's the natural host for the varroa mite. Those bees are smaller, and they prefer, you know, like I said, the varroa prefers the drone cell. So I might have gotten ahead of myself. So let me back up a little bit. So somewhere in the late 1800s, AI Root created a foundation mill where you feed wax through, and you, you crank this handle, and it and it uh, comes out with this sheet of stamped hexagonal pattern on a wax sheet. 
and that foundation goes into the hive. Well, he figured during this sort of beekeeping revolution back then where they were trying to maximize and advance the science to it, he figured a bigger bee would carry more honey, more nectar, more product. And so he artificially enlarged the size of the cell on his foundation mill. Okay, so to an unnatural size. And so big, actually, to where the, we did a little bit of math. Me and a friend of mine actually sat down and counted the amount of foundation stamps on a small cell versus what they're calling a normal piece of foundation. And there's about one-third less on the larger or normal size foundation. So he artificially enlarged the size, and, and we've kind of gotten away with that for 100 years. But here's the problem. Our quote-unquote natural size B almost identically matches the size of the drone cell of Apis serrani, the natural host of the varroa mite. Bingo. Ouch. Okay, so there's, there's a big, big problem. Uh, it, did, it came back to bite us, and, um, and so now that correlation, if we can get the bees to regress back to what they would go to if, if bees go feral, they automatically sort of start regressing themselves back to that smaller size. And sure. they, can, they, they can strike a balance with that varroa mite, homeostasis in a colony. But if you keep them on that artificially enlarged size, the varroa mites are just tenacious. So does top bar naturally <clears throat> result in that because they're making their own cells then? That's true to an extent. It will happen over a number of cycles. And that's what I like about the, the Ware hive is because it's got that comb rotation built in. Mm. So if you take artificially enlarged bees or your normal bees, you just call any old package supplier out of a catalog, you're going to get these big bees. And you pop them in a Ware hive and over a... You know, I, well, the num- it's, number's still out for jury. I don't know exactly how many brood cycles it's going to take for them to get back down to a natural size, but it's going to be a few. And so that's one of the things to think about. But as you're removing, completely removing that top comb and, and, and you know, driving your bees down, so to speak, and they're building new combs, new combs, new combs, it lets them regress. It gives them the opportunity to regress because you're not just shoving the old material back in their face. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's freeing them up to draw the comb as they need it. And that's another interesting thing, too, is that bees don't build all the same cell size. You know, they build the cell size that they need within certain parameters. They'll build bigger ones for, for honey storage and raising drones. And then Generally, in the center of the brood nest, they'll be at their very smallest and then get slightly bigger as you come out. So you'll find a range of different cell sizes in a, in a beehive. But by using that foundation, you're going against that natural tendency for variety there, and you're forcing them to do something they don't want to do, which stresses them out. And, uh, and anybody that's stressed is going to get sick, bee or human. Absolutely. Stress is probably the biggest killer we have in, across all walks of life. If you take any animal and just put it into a state of stress for long enough, or it'll either die of something like cardiac arrest or it will succumb to illness and die. Uh, you can kill anything with stress, and it doesn't really take as much stress as people would think to kill relatively quickly, especially with smaller life forms. That's interesting. That reminds me of a... Of, uh scientific study that was done on small cell because I think some of your listeners now hearing me talk about it 
will probably either bring this study up or come across this study that was done. And um, <laughs> there's some flaws in the way that it was done. They took packages of bees, and a package is essentially where they take a, a box about the size of a shoebox with screen on both sides of it, and they just shake bees off of frames down into a funnel into this package box until it weighs three pounds. And then they cap the lid, and that's how they mail it to you with a queen in there. That's a package. So to do this study, they took all these packages from unrelated hives and different sources, big bees and small cell bees, and they dumped them all into this giant vat and then took those bees all mixed up, stressed out, who knows what else, probably fighting each other, you know, going, what is going on, you know, because bees go by smell, so that nobody recognized anybody. You got chaos in this giant vat. And then they took these bees and shook them out across different new hive setups with artificially enlarged foundation and small cell foundation. And then they tried to do a scientific study on whether or not small cell foundation was viable. And... <laughs> To me, I just think it was, you know, garbage in, garbage out. I think it was just a flawed way to do it. I understand science has rigid rules and they need controls and things like that, but that particular study is uh, just really sticks in my mind as uh, as unfortunate because it was accepted by a lot of people, and there's a lot of naysayers that still fight the small cell theory, and uh, I think results speak for themselves. I I don't treat my bees at all with nothing, and they survive year after year and thrive. And they're probably becoming more resilient year after year because you're letting them develop their own immunity, whether it's collective or individualized. That's true. That's true. And I make the tough choices, too. Sometimes, you know, I, you know, I have a loss here and there, but it's, I let them die. I don't prop up bad genetics. I don't, I don't want those drones carrying on those bad genetics into my colony. So only the strongest survive. And like you said, they just get better and better for it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Now, on supplies, do you have people you prefer to deal with, or do you provide supplies? Or There's a couple of bee breeders that I deal with. One's in um, Centerville, Tennessee, John and Ruth Seaborn. They're great people, and they have excellent bees. I had one guy that bought a hive from them, and, uh, gosh, he harvested over 100 pounds of honey the first year. Now, that's, oh. not, that's not normal, but it, no. it did happen. And uh, those are treatment-free, small-cell bees. And uh, and then there's a guy called the Fat Bee Man, Don Kukemeister. He's down in Georgia. And uh, he's a great guy, too. He has excellent bees. He's been doing it for 50 years. That's all he's ever done. And uh, I had the luxury of going, actually driving down and meeting him. He has a teaching yard right on his property where he teaches all these sort of natural beekeeping techniques and you can pay, you know, it's you know really pennies. I mean, if he charged ten times the amount, it'd be worth it. But you can go down and spend a day, week, a month with him, and uh, learn all about that stuff. I hope, hopefully, within a few years, I'll, I'll sort of ramp up and maybe start selling some packages and nukes. But right now, it's just I'm just continuing my education and uh, and having fun with it. Very cool. Now, what about just like for hives and stuff like that? And instead of bees, like, do you have any preferred suppliers for just the, you know, the the, the hives themselves and, and stuff like that? Uh, not any favorites. I kind of look for the free shipping deal because that's kind of yeah. outrageous these days. Uh, uh, Kelly Bees has uh, free shipping near Thanksgiving every year. 
Man Lake usually has free shipping on anything over a hundred bucks, and uh, those two I normally stick with. Very cool. So, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us here today, man. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. And uh, you got any just like, do you have any final words maybe for the person that's going? I really want to do this, but they just have that apprehension. Like, can I really handle this? They're maybe a little bit afraid of the fact that daggone things sting, or they're afraid they're going to kill them all, or they're just having that little bit of like, you know, they need that final nudge to get off the fence and, and jump in with both feet. Absolutely. Well, it seems overwhelming because it's a, uh, it's one of those hobbies where when you first look at it, it seems simple enough, but then you start getting into it and realize it's like an onion where just more and more layers open back. But it's only as complicated as you want it to be. I know beekeepers that have a hive, that, and they essentially just you know let them do what they do, and they and they survive. So you can get into the beehive as much or as little as you want to. Uh, you can really make it. It's not like uh, you know having hens in the backyard where you're going to need to pay them some attention to keep them healthy bees kind of just do their own thing you don't have to worry about going on vacation who's going to take care of your bees uh, i just urge people to just go out there and do it yeah i've never seen a business for bee sitting like you know you have pet sitters right they, they, <laughs> it's almost like they were here before us and knew what they were doing before we got here exactly very cool well hey again craig man thank you for being with us today on the show Thank you. Appreciate it. And folks, with that, this is Dan Jack Spirico today, along with Craig Yarden, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
revolution is you.